Hello, and welcome back to The Distracted Gardener. I hope wherever you are and whenever you're listening, you're doing well. Last week, we were talking about starting seeds and starting to get the garden ready for the coming of spring. I'm thrilled to say that 90% of the seeds I planted sprouted and have been moved off the heat mat and under some lights. I did have some disappointments, uh, particularly with the jalapenos I planted, but the seeds were old and I was kind of expecting it, but hoping I could get one more one more sowing out of them, I guess. I'm going to be doing some more seeds today, or I guess probably tomorrow morning though, and I'll be reattempting jalapenos with some fresh seed that I picked up from the Greenfields project here in Japan. If that doesn't go to plan, then I'll be a bit bummed, but probably the seeds are f- hopefully fresh if they are as marketed. But even as I say, even if it doesn't, I still have the overwintered jalapeno from from last season. So so at least I'll have something ready, I suppose. Uh, one of the interesting things that I'm going to be doing tomorrow after, after doing that second flush of seeds is I'm going to be making a mushroom bucket. Uh, my my wife's grandfather grows shiitake mushrooms behind the house. There's like a there's a, a very very pretty much perpetually shaded area behind the house, and he set up uh, I don't know like a stack of six logs or so. I guess it would have been last year that we went together to to get the the wood and and the spores and all that. And and so no, we had our first flush, multiple flushes of shiitake mushrooms this year. And oh man. It's so different having homegrown mushrooms versus versus what you get in the store. It really is. It really is quite different. Uh, just it's just it's just the freshness. I think you know. And anyway, I've been trying to think about different things that I can do. Uh, and of course, mushrooms are are. If you're trying to move away from meat, for example, they can be a really important part of your diet. And I'm trying to trying to think about how uh, how can I say that I can move away from from such a meat heavy diet, I suppose. And anyway, that being said, I'm going to try and grow some oyster mushrooms in a bucket like setup. But it's actually going to be uh, an old container that I'm not going to use anymore that I'm going to try and convert. But I'm actually going to do a proper YouTube video on that. I think for the first time in a while, I'll probably make a video. So uh, I guess I'll talk about that more when it happens. There are another changes I've made to the garden that I'd love to talk about, but I want to get into the topic for today. So I'll leave those changes to a blog post, which you can check out over at naturalfukui, probably around, uh, excuse me, naturalfukui.com, probably around Tuesday or Wednesday, which would be the day after or the day after the day after this podcast goes live. Uh, Today, I want to talk about a recent study from the University of Michigan that found that urban agriculture may have a significantly greater carbon footprint than conventional farming. I think for the sake of for the sake of clarity, or I suppose for the sake of my own ease, I, I think today we'll refer to urban agriculture as urban egg and we'll refer to conventional farming as big egg perhaps. I think it first might be useful to define exactly what urban egg is or urban gardening is, and I'll just use the definition provided by Oxford Languages, which is the practice of farming within an urban environment, especially for the cultivation of food crops for human consumption. 
of course, by that definition, my veranda garden is an example of urban gardening, I suppose, as I am farming gardening within an urban environment, albeit within a small city, for the cultivation of food crops. I'm not terribly sure about sort of the landscape in Japan, so to speak, but in the American context, it seems like urban agriculture is significantly increasing, has significantly increased over the last couple of years and looks to be continuing. The reasons for this are varied. Bringing food cultivation into urban centers means reducing food mileage, which we talked about a little bit before, and thereby eliminating those emissions that would ordinarily be produced through transport. Urban centers tend to be home to larger disadvantaged populations who lack access to fresh, healthy food. Increasing cultivated and green spaces in cities can also aid in reduction of the heat island effect, and urban gardens can serve as increasingly needed way stations and homes for wildlife species that are running out of places to call home. This is a very, very general overview, so I would encourage those of you interested to read more. Uh, I will leave a link to the U.S. Department of Agriculture Climate Hub's homepage in the show notes. It, it gives a, a pretty good rundown, I think, of reasons for uh, the growth of urban agriculture. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot more details than I'm going to go into in this space because it's not really uh, the focus of the topic, or of, of the episode, I mean. The thing about urban agriculture and... I have to admit I'm speaking from my own anecdotal experience here is that I think people do it with only good intentions and I've talked at length about my own reasons but I think it suffices to say that I believed and continue to believe that the practice yields excuse me the practice yields a net positive both for my myself and also for the greater world at large so it was with some dismay that I read comparing the carbon footprint of urban and conventional agriculture a study from the University of Michigan published in Nature Cities in January 2024. Before talking about the study, I should make it clear that I am not a professional scientist, and it could be that I misread the article, but it is my intention to honestly portray the findings in the study in an overview and give my reactions to them. Uh, to summarize, after studying 73, was it, different urban egg setups in both North America and Europe, it was found that urban agriculture has a six times larger uh, carbon footprint than conventional agriculture, right, than big ag. It did note, however, that in the case of individually managed gardens, that is, gardens managed by single gardeners, people like me who, who are doing it all themselves in a small space, uh, that as much as 25% of these outperformed conventional farm setups. The minutiae would be best understood when explained by someone more equipped to do so than me, but I would encourage you to look at the study via the show notes if you're interested in the fine details. What I do want to point out is that the study found three major areas in which urban gardeners slash farmers should be careful of in order to reduce their impact on the environment. The first is infrastructure, and infrastructure we can think about like materials used for building raised beds or or greenhouses or or soil or compost infrastructure uh, buildings anything like that right apparently infrastructure is sort of one of the biggest contributors to uh, uh, urban farms uh, urban agriculture's um, carbon footprint because it requires a lot of shipping for example shipping in wood the production of that wood shipping in plastics and metals to make greenhouses, the, the the gases and stuff that are produced from the production of these things. And it's, of course, in some ways that can't be helped because you need to make something out of 
something, right? You have to make this kind of infrastructure out of something. However, the issue is that urban farms are often sort of transient, by which I mean they need to move locations frequently, usually uh, because of uh, development of the area and the loss of their land rights, for example. And so in this way, resources like wood, plastic, etc., which would be used for decades, right, if you're on like a, a piece of land that's your own, so you can just continue using the infrastructure you built for however long you want to. Um, and obviously that would re- result in a low a low footprint because it's stretched out over time. In these situations in urban ag, you would wind up, you know, with something that you could have used for 20 years, only using it for three years or five years. And so obviously the impact from that, because it's in such a, you know, spread out such a over such a much shorter area um, is much greater than it would be, again, in, in more like big egg situations where they're just using the same the same piece of land and the same infrastructure over time. Now, if we scale this down to the single urban gardener, this is akin to buying a bunch of planters and tools and throwing them out after a few years, even when they're in good condition. Obviously, this is a waste of money, but, you know, obviously that means that you will have wasted all of the different resources that went into making those tools, making those planters. And when I say resources, obviously we're talking about the metals and wood and everything else like that, but also the gases produced from from making those things and also shipping those things and um, everything else related to that. The next idea to be mindful of is inputs, things like compost and other fertilizer. Many urban farms use higher amounts of synthetic fertilizers than their conventional counterparts. I imagine this is an issue of access or even one of cost. I know that in my own garden, any inputs that I'm using with the with the asides of a uh, of the compost, which I'm now making, not all, all, all by myself, but mostly by myself, I make sure that I'm getting something that's organic and it's produced, for example, like, uh, what is it? What is that? Like fishbone, <laughs> fishbone broth is not the right way to put it. What do you call it? It's a liquid that's made out of fish bones, right? And that obviously is a, is an organic source, but it's also much more expensive for me to go that route than it would be for me to buy, you know, whatever blue, blue sludge or whatever you can get at the local box store. And so I imagine that, again, in places in urban centers where people tend to have greater issues of access and and income and and things like that, that maybe it's an issue of cost. The study quite clearly lays out the benefits and need to lose local food waste to make compost, for example. Further, rain capture and the use of grain water systems should also be made a priority. In the example given in the study, the energy needed to pump water, treat it, and distribute it around these places accounted for as much as 83% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions on certain farms. And I think kind of touching back on the first point we made, right, infrastructure. I suppose if we think about not only like local waste as far as food waste goes, we could also think about things like you know, reusing lumber from buildings in the area that aren't being used anymore, right? Basically reusing lumber, reusing those kind of materials to build infrastructure that would probably also fit into this section of the study, I would imagine. One thing that really surprised me to read was that while producing compost is an essential part of sustainable agriculture and farming, it can also be damaging if improperly produced. And I knew that in, in my own situation, right, where I'm producing produce, uh, excuse me, I'm producing compost in basically like uh, in compost bags, you know, I know that if I don't 
regularly mix up the bags that it's it's going to slow down the process and maybe it could mess up the process of actually making the of making the um of making the compost because it 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 leads to anaerobic environment within the soil and so that means that it's not broken down as well right however what was pointed out in this study is that if you're producing compost for example on your urban plot and you're not properly managing it it can be 10 times more productive as far as methane than than you know uh, other situations with the, in which the compost is properly managed so that really sort of <laughs> that really surprised me it shocked me right because it's compost right like I don't know about you but when I hear I think about oh you know making my own compost it seems like I don't know of course, now I'm realizing what a mistake it was to think of it as somehow virtuous, but uh, apparently it can actually, you know, if you don't do it right, it could it could be kind of a bad thing. So that's something to keep in mind, I think. The last is the necessity for urban farmers to act in ways that benefit local society. Again, this is the last section that was that was uh, featured in, in the study. The idea here is that urban farms improve mental health, diets, and social networks, to directly quote the study. Urban farms often bring in members of the community to work on the farms, leading to increased social connection. Kind of as an aside, I mentioned before, uh, I think when I was talking about sort of the my sources for getting gardening information, I mentioned that there's a there's a, a show called Growing a Greener World with uh, Joe Lample of the Joe Gardner podcast. Anyway, that, that was looking at... Um, uh, one of the episodes is looking at an urban farm and I don't remember the city and the details aren't really so important, but the idea was that a lot of these programs and urban centers are very effective at reducing violence and, and not only violence, but crime in, in given areas because by bringing people together to work in a garden, people learn to respect the space more and, and, you know, it's harder to, um, it's harder to do bad things to people when you when you work side by side with them every day. So I think that's that's sort of what this is uh, this is sort of like tickling at here. And beyond also like the social connection, bring in fresh produce into these areas that often struggle to find access to healthier, fresher produce. You know, uh, mental and physical health are likewise improved as a direct result. And so I think the idea that the study was trying to get at was that if you take a more wide lens, holistic approach to urban agriculture, it can outcompete the benefits of big agriculture because big agriculture does not care about, you know, improving these sort of uh, community ties. It doesn't care about improving these neighborhoods that historically have access problems and equity problems, you know. But I have to admit, I wasn't completely on completely certain on how it connects to the issue of greenhouse gases but we can also blame that on my brain i'll leave that to you fair listener if you want to read through it and maybe you can tell me uh exactly what what the connection was there so i just spat out or regurgitated a lot of the information that i got out of this study but what do i actually think about all of it well i first heard about this study from a youtuber by the name of next level gardening uh, the gentleman who runs the channel made the whole thing out to be very doom and gloom. And, you know, I can understand the knee-jerk reaction a bit. As I said at the beginning of the episode, I don't think anybody gets into this with anything other than the best of intentions. You know, we want to believe that what we're doing can only yield positives. So when someone suggests that you might be doing more harm than good, yeah, that, you know, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks, you know, to think that, to think like, you know, you're, you're doing, you're doing your part 
to provide food for your family or, or to, you know, to provide shelter for, for, um, wildlife or, or to do your part, you know, to help fight off the negative effects of climate change, for example, and then to have a study like this come out, you know, I, I definitely get it. But studies to me are not something to get upset about. No one has done anything to me by putting this information out there. And of course, you know, you can choose to accept the findings of the study or not. And sometimes, you know, there's also the issue of some studies being more vigorous than others. But the study itself is not necessarily a condemnation of urban agriculture. In fact, it points out that 17 of the 73 farms studied outperformed conventional agriculture. It then gives you advice on how to be more carbon friendly. Negative? Mm. On the contrary, you can only fix what you know needs fixing. And so I find the study to be troubling, but with a positive potential overall effect. Now, what are the lessons we can take from the study, whether we're urban gardeners and farmers or not? The first, I think, is about implementing long-term infrastructure solutions and making sure they are actually implemented in the long term. That's a bit circular, but the point is to use things that you've invested your money into because not only do they represent, you know, investments of your money and therefore your hard, you, you know, your hard worked hours, but they also represent investments in carbon and other resources. I threw away a wooden planter the other day that I'd only been using for two years, and after going through the study, I wondered what that meant as far as my own negative impact. Uh, it was all sorts of broken, mind you, and so could no longer function as a planter, but I wonder now what I could have repurposed the wood into. And you know, I'm not going to beat myself up about it because there's nothing I can do about it now, but I, I think it, it is worth, you know, it is worth considering um, and, and improving upon so that I can make a better decision potentially in the future. The next thing, of course, is to be mindful of your inputs. It's my opinion that anything is better than synthetic fertilizers and soil amendments, but it also seems clear that organic can't be the only measure of whether or not something is earth-friendly. Locally sourcing compost, uh, excuse me, locally sourcing compost from a trusted source is likely to be the best option for people in cramped urban environments, but making it yourself through something like a bucket or a bag system means you can properly manage it, thereby reducing the negative impact its production could have, but also means you can control the quality. Something that I didn't mention is that the study touches on how the type of vegetables you grow will greatly impact your imprint. This is something I found a website called impactful.ninja. It's, I mean, it's the first time I've looked at it and it could be kind of dubious. If we're just going by the name, it seems a little bit dubious. But if this is to be to believed, for example, um, there's there's a list that one of the article gives, one of the articles give that is called 10 Vegetables with the Highest Carbon Footprint, the Full Life Cycle Analysis. And it talks about a number of different things, but just, just one that I think we could mention is uh, bell peppers, for example, in the American context, uh, are often imported from Mexico. Uh, so they're you know likely to be more carbon efficient if you grow them at home, for example. I know that here in Japan, mostly when I see affordable, or, or maybe what, what we would say is reasonably priced, bell peppers they're almost always imported from south korea so i imagine that growing bell peppers again in in the veranda garden for example will will mean that they're more carbon efficient than than those that uh were shipped over from korea for example now speaking to the last point of focus in the study the need to offer some sort of social benefit to your community well i don't 
definitely don't grow enough really to offer crops to the neighbors and I don't have the setup to teach at least to bring people to the garden to teach but I guess I'm sort of doing that through this platform but I do like to think that the benefits offered to my family via homegrown nutrient-dense veg count towards this that's sort of like you know that's that's one of the big couple of reasons why why I'm why I'm putting in all the work to to you know to garden so uh hopefully <laughs> not not that anyone involved in the study is ever going to listen to this probably but if they do hopefully that 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 sort of you know uh immediate benefit to your immediate community being your family uh counts uh for that now I want to speak to what I find to be missing in the study because while I do say that I think well I have said I should say that this probably will have an overall positive effect. I do have some some concerns, I suppose. The study is focused completely on carbon footprint, which is to say the amount of CO2 produced in gram per vegetable serving. And that's undoubtedly something we need to consider, but I think it's also important to think of what falls outside the scope of the study. We touched on it back in episode five, our delivery veg sustainable, but conventional farming even if it is six times less carbon intensive than urban ag, is incredibly damaging in ways conscientious small-scale producers are potentially less likely to be. I would like to see a study comparing, for instance, numbers of wildlife, including soil microbiology, in properly managed urban farms versus conventional ag. Further, at least according to my reading of the study, it doesn't really discuss the loss of carbon... uh, Excuse me. That's difficult to say. (laughs) The loss of carbon... there it is again. Let's try for a third time. Discuss the loss of carbon sick. <laughs> it doesn't discuss the loss of carbon sequestration. Sequestration. Further, at least according to my reading of the study, it doesn't discuss the loss of carbon sequestration due to tilling of fields in conventional, e.g., industrial agricultural setups. It also doesn't talk about the effects of synthetic fertilizer runoff and other and all the other damage caused by conventional ag techniques. That doesn't necessarily qualify as a criticism of the study, mind you, as the study was focused only on carbon footprint, but I suppose that I I just don't want people to lose faith. Surely there are things we need to improve in order to be responsible growers and to reduce our carbon footprint. I think even even if it is the case that you're doing everything right, it's important to reflect on that, you know, and see even if you are doing everything and if there's not something that you can do better, you know. There are undoubtedly benefits we're offering in spades as urban gardeners or as non-urban gardeners that simply fell outside the scope of the study. So as I say, I simply don't want people to lose faith and say, well, screw it, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna grow anymore. Because I think ultimately when we take kind of a, you know, a long-term big picture sort of sort of uh, view of this that will that giving up will actually be the uh the thing that does the most damage so if you would just go ahead uh take some time read the study if you feel like it or at the very least think about some of the things that i shared in today's episode and i think that's where we'll leave it for this week as i said links to the study and other things i talked about will be in the show notes i do encourage you to read the study for yourself If you feel like I left anything out or I misunderstood or maybe even accidentally misrepresented something that was said in the study, please let me know. As I said, I want to do my best to fairly and accurately portray the information, you know, and I'd be happy to talk about your your opinions about the information provided. 
so you can get at me either on Instagram or Twitter or threads at naturalfukui, or you can find me at naturalfukui.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back next week.